So earlier here at the Museums of the University of St Andrews, we've been working on this project called Dive In, which is all about how we protect our oceans. And I wondered what the, the biggest thing you've learnt is on this project. I think just that we as humans around the world are united by this, this one ocean. Yes, that surprised me as well, because at school we learned that there were lots of oceans, you know, the Atlantic mm -hmm. and the Pacific yeah. and that, and, and it turns out that actually it's only one ocean, which yeah. um, I worry about the pirates. Why do you Well, because worry? we all know that the pirates sail the seven seas. Oh, I see. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe someone should tell them. Should we just get on with recording the podcast? Maybe. Yeah, let's do that. Welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Today we're talking to Dr Chris Leakey and Hannah Ladd-Jones, both part of the Scottish Oceans Institute based at the University of St Andrews and the Marine Alliance for Science and Technology for Scotland, otherwise known as MASTS. Chris and Hannah are involved in a new behaviour change initiative called People, Ocean, Planet, which aims to influence human actions so that they impact the ocean environment for the better. They're also working with the museums of the University of St Andrews on a project called Dive In, which is all about looking after our ocean. Today's episode is called Sea Change. Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of the Curiosity Conversation. We're pleased to be joined today by Dr. Chris Leakey and Hannah Ladd-Jones. Hello, welcome. Hello. Hi. So um, your work centres around the ocean and threats to our ocean. Um, but I guess my first question is, um, why should we care about the ocean at all? Well, that's a great place to start. And the ocean is fundamentally, fantastically important for humanity <laughs> at large, uh, which is rather a, a grand statement, but undeniably true. I think we probably often, because it's over there, often out of sight, we probably quite often underestimate how incredibly important it is just to make the planet work on a fairly fundamental level. Um, in terms of, I guess, the physics and the chemistry of, of stuff, um, but also, you know, it feeds us. It's an incredibly important place for food and nutrition. Um, and particularly, you know, in poorer parts of the world, that is true. Um, but it provides us with all sorts of other things and increasingly is, is providing us with energy as well. The list could go on. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's it, isn't it? It's, it's uh, pick your pick your top ten rather than the the top the top fifty, maybe. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting point about you know the ocean being something that, like you say, the way that you put it was it's over there. We're not we're not thinking about it. It's out of sight, out of mind, that sort of thing. I think living on the coast in Scotland, that's maybe slightly less true than if you live in a landlocked country or if you're in the middle of a city or whatever but um i think it's it's interesting that you know if people don't see something it's it's sometimes quite difficult to to visualize what mm. what the biggest threats facing the oceans are i guess so for for our second question i think it'd be quite interesting to hear what you both think the biggest threats facing facing the ocean are actually 
Yeah, okay. So, um, I mean, first of all, I would just pick up on that last point as well. Uh, just from a personal point of view, I was, um, grew up on mainland Scotland, but I've been fortunate to spend some time living on Shetland, for example. And it is quite noticeable the difference, you know, at a community level, people's um, sense of connectedness, connectedness with the sea and recognition of the issues and, um, you know, what it gives them. Um, as, as individuals or as communities is, is noticeably different if you're somewhere like Shetland where, you know, it's right there all the time. It is a fundamental part of your, your everyday life. In terms of the, the big issues, I guess I always um, start from a fairly simple place in, in just the statement that we consume too much stuff, we waste too much stuff, and we cause a lot of collateral damage in the process of doing all that. Um, and so the problems for the ocean are fundamentally the same as for the planet and humanity on the whole. Um, obviously, climate change is, is front and centre in our minds at the moment, and rightly so, it is, it is the big one. Um, and that manifests in, in a variety of different ways at sea and at the coast. Um, but there's lots of other challenges as well, like unsustainable uh, fisheries, loss and damage of different habitats or species, um, things like pollution and contamination, which is not just about plastic, but about other stuff that usually comes from the land via rivers. Um, and, well, again, the list could probably go on, and those would probably be, be the top top ones at the moment. There's also other stuff around the corner. Um, we know that there's there's a growing demand and uh, risk of lots of deep sea mining, which is quite a big interesting issue because it's one that is on the verge of happening but not quite there. Um, and that's very much something that would be out of sight and for most people out of mind. I think what's interesting is that all of the things that you've just mentioned can be traced back to what's going on on, on land, basically. Um, whatever is happening in the ocean is directly linked to what we are doing on the surface, basically. Absolutely. And I started with climate change and then listed a whole bunch of other problems, but actually all of those other problems also connect with climate change as a problem, um, either by, you know, exacerbating or, or, or making, you know, they might be affected by climate change or be affecting climate change more itself. <laughs> um, or they might just be another stressor on the environment, um, which makes it less resilient and, and able to, to jump back. You just mentioned there, Chris, that um, the environment might not be able to jump back. Is it too late for us to, to change things? I would say, no, absolutely, it, it's not too late. And for the most part, we, we know what to do, actually. It's just doing it sometimes is the, is the difficult thing, because it usually involves a compromise of some sort. Um, but coming from kind of the mar marine sciences, there's a particular, I think, interest and enthusiasm and optimism, just because actually, in many ways, the biology and the physics of the marine environment and the life there it has a, a dynamism and a natural stochasticity that means if you can remove those pressures those stresses it actually has quite a strong natural capacity to recover but you do need to take those pressures away yeah i, I think uh, 
a good example of the fact that you know things can bounce back there's actually uh there were things online being shown uh, right at the start of the pandemic like animals were coming back into the, the canals of venice um we've seen more life in certain areas where where a lot of boat activity happens now being seen um and people were uh, experiencing more of nature actually in the oceans because things calmed down a little. We gave the ocean a, a bit of time to breathe. One of the things we do have to be quite careful of is that people talk about tipping points, and particularly in, mm. you know with things to do with climate change. And you know that's a whole massive area of of science. And you know I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but there are potentially tipping points beyond which it becomes a lot harder or maybe impossible to recover. Um, you know, and I, I guess big examples might be, you know, the uh, melting of ice sheets um, in, the, in the north and around the Arctic Circle and what might then become really fundamental changes in ocean circulation. You know, that's the kind of thing that if that happens, uh, which it could well happen, that's really difficult to turn back the clock on. So we, we need um, solutions. We need to do something about this. It sounds like we need to do this fairly rapidly before we reach some of these tipping points. So what 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 are some of the solutions? What do we need to do to, to get our oceans back on track? I think we've kind of reached a point, particularly uh, myself and uh, Chris, you've, you're coming at it from an academic background. Um, it's no longer enough to just do science and publish a paper anymore. Some of the concepts that Chris spoke about, some of the issues that are happening in these oceans are, you know, it is outside, out of mind. It's really abstract to understand what is ocean acidification. Um, so one of the key things that we need to do is make science, marine science, more accessible. Um, and, um, you know, we need not just a few people doing it perfectly, but lots of people doing positive actions that have a positive influence on the oceans less perfectly but on a wider scale and understanding the influence that they have on the oceans and then again the influence the ocean's influence on us and kind of completing that circle that actually we can positively act in harmony with the ocean and kind of relieve those pressures um and yeah to start improving society's connectedness with the oceans is one of the biggest things that we need to overcome and i mean society by youth, uh, the general public, policymakers, uh, other academics in other disciplines too. It's a big collaborative effort for the entire entirety of society. That's my first that's the first step. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great point Hannah, Hannah raised. And I think where I often start actually is reflecting on what's happened in recent years with uh, plastic waste as an issue. You know, and how that it's been an issue and people have been aware for a long time, but there's a huge surge um, through the, the, was it the Blue Planet 2 programme and that, you know, really public awareness and consciousness of that, that as an issue really took off. And to a large degree, I attribute that to it being a very visible thing. It's a very tangible thing. People can see it as a problem all about them and they connect, can connect to that problem very readily to things they do in their lives, things they choose to buy, things they choose to throw away, uh, whether they throw them away responsibly or not. And I guess for all these other issues, 
you know, the less tangible, the less visible stuff like climate change, like what's happening in the deep sea, what's happening just below the surface, um, and that are perhaps a consequence of less tangible actions. How do we generate that same level of ambition and response in the public, but also, as we're all now seeing with, with plastic waste from, you know, business, big corporations and government, you know, plastic waste is obviously an issue that's still a long way from being solved, but there is a fantastically large amount of things improving. Um, and that's the kind of response we able to be able, want to be able to generate on other issues as well. As I was just going to uh, also add in that um, lots of people, when they think of the ocean and climate change, uh, the initial thought uh, which comes to mind is sometimes like, what does my action even mean? I'm only one person. Um, and it's changing that perception and creating a mutual support throughout people, throughout society, to understand that actually every individual matters. And yes, whilst we do need um, governments to undertake their own actions, it's on a personal level and it's throughout the entire stakeholder. We are all stakeholders when it comes to the ocean. And so everyone's impact um, does matter. No, no matter how small it is, there's always a positive impact from choosing more sustainably, for instance. Something we hear sometimes is that the the concept of the carbon footprint was, I don't know yeah. if this is really true or not, but it was it was created by a you know, big, big, big business, big kind of oil business to kind of transfer the responsibility uh, for those problems to the individual, to people, to, to citizens. Uh, and um, in reality, of course, lifestyle change and your carbon footprint is, is not isolated from what happens what governments do and what big biz what big businesses do. You know, I describe them as two sides of the same coin. You know, one is a catalyst for the other. Um, yes, governments and businesses can do stuff that makes it easier for people to change. Um, but also, you know, governments are going to respond more quickly, and businesses are going to change more quickly if they have that social license or the the market forces from people um, telling them what they want and need. I think that's a, a really interesting point and we're kind of touching on that idea of behaviour change and how we go about changing people's behaviour in relation to their own actions and sort of wider societal changes uh, with regard to to sort of the issues facing our oceans. Um, and I, I guess there's an, a bit of an interesting question around, you know, changing people's behaviour is, is quite an interesting concept really isn't it um through messaging or whatever it might be do we do we think that changing people's behavior is maybe even a little bit sinister in some cases or is it or is it or is it all just is it all good basically it's it's interesting it's, it's going into the realms of psychology at that point isn't it it is that i mean that's actually a very important question you're getting into the ethics of behavior change here and that is important um i guess you know, there are good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. Um, there are ways you can do it where I guess we would advocate behaviour change that is rooted in in conscious thought and change and, and, and that it is um, underpinned by an understanding of the issues and the solutions by the people you're trying to change. There are a lot of 
behavior change tools and, and mechanisms out there which rely more on subconscious change. Um, and if you're using those, you need to be very clear on your ethics, I think, is probably what I would say there. But, you know, I guess we have to remember as well that behavioral change, the sort of psychology and the sociology of that, you know, that's used all the time in healthcare um, for good things, you know, um, and but also it's used all the time in, in marketing and, mm. and things which for a lot of people are less ethical. Um, so I think as so long as we're clear why we're doing it and who we're trying to change and why, and it's justifiable, it's rooted in the science um, and, you know, good outcomes for society and the planet, then I think it's a good thing. So with, with that in mind, how, particularly in relation to the ocean, how do we go about changing people's behavior so that our ocean is, is better protected? It's not easy, I guess, is the first place to, first thing to say. Um, we, I guess, the projects we're doing, you know, we're not behavioral scientists. You know, we're coming at this very much as uh, people in the marine sciences um, who actively want to start using more of these behavioral change tools um, and methods. And so to some degree, we want to be able to work with those specialists to do that. But we've been learning a bit about the kinds of the sort of the frameworks, I guess, you can you can use to organize yourself. And I guess there's two things I would mention in there. We there's ocean literacy as a concept is one that is definitely on the rise. It's, it's a, probably not a very good term for most people. Um, but it is as a concept has evolved from being about people's knowledge and understanding of the ocean um, to actually also include uh, more emotional changes in people's attitudes to the ocean and and you know so values and attitudes and all the way to, to behavior change. So that idea of ocean literacy encompasses all those things but very much like our principles rooted in the knowledge and the science and um, awareness I guess um, amongst those people. And then there's the sort of the model for behavioral change if you like that we've adopted is a twist on something called the ISM model, which is the individual, social, and material um, aspects of behaviour change, and that's the that's the, the model actually the Scottish government um, adopt in their behavioural change work. And our twist on that is uh, motivate, socialise, and ease the change. Those are kind of the three components. So we think about how do we motivate people. So part of that is giving them the knowledge, the information, but also where you can maybe the incentives, for example. And then the socialised change is very much about uh, putting those desirable changes in a social context. So psychologists and sociologists will talk about social norms and social identities as being really important uh, for turning behavior change into social change and cultural change. So it's that um, 
I guess there's a sort of tipping point in, in this as well. We talked about tipping points in the environment earlier. There's tipping points for behavioural change as well, where if you start to see more and more people doing a certain thing or not doing a certain thing, you will start to perceive that, often subconsciously, as the normal thing to do or not do. Um, and so we don't actually have to change everybody. We just have to change enough people <laughs> to get to that tipping point, And then there should be a cascade, if you like. So um, the social element is really, really powerful, uh, I think. And then there's also ease to change. And that's recognising that even if you motivate people and you make it socially appealing, um, there might be other barriers. You know, for some people that might be a wealth barrier. Some people probably can't afford an electric car yet or to get a, a renewable heat system for their house. Um, or it might be that actually there can be, you can ease something through legislation or through you know, lots of different things, often kind of um, financial or regulatory levers, I guess, is, is some of the things that fall into that category. I think that's really interesting, actually, that that point about um the potential wealth barriers to change and that that sort of thing you know I'm, I'm thinking about you know reusable makeup wipes are a lot more expensive than you know cotton pads that you could get for a pound or that sort of thing and, and it is it's, it's really diff- difficult I guess talking about that tipping point and that that point where it becomes socially more acceptable and and a good thing um, to, to to make that change. Do you think that the idea of of how the plastics dialogue has has gone? Would you say that's a good example, a good model for for changing behaviour? Right. I think I think first off, going back to something I might have said earlier is that uh, and Chris highlighted. You know, the plastics was a very easy to understand impact that people had you know they could be watching a documentary and see that plastic bag uh, and a turtle getting tangled up it's very easy to kind of say that could have been my plastic bag these are things that I have in my hand right now and um, it's thinking about some of the actions that we do now won't be realized or felt until quite a bit in time and um Going back to actually making more sustainable choices when at first it seems expensive. One of the kind of um, most well-known examples is the investment in an electric car. You know, it's expensive to do to buy those cars right now, but actually in the long term, it is it does work out cheaper for the individual. But it's overcoming that initial unpleasantness that your bank <laughs> your bank takes your bank account um, gets impacted by, and um, yeah, I think with the plastics, it was easier to understand what was happening in the oceans, what we're going to have to, with some of these other issues, be more innovative about how we make it more accessible um, to individuals to understand what's happening and how their actions impact that issue. And plastics was very um, an isolated issue within the ocean as well, was actually all these other issues that we've mentioned earlier are impacted by climate change as well. They are they all impact one another. The ocean is a massive, massive ecosystem. And one impact here issue is going to affect something else too. So actually it's understanding this kind of all associated issues interplay with each other as well. And we're going to have to be really savvy with how we 
talk about these and try not to come trying to box everything up into individual issues when actually they combine together and be quite a big one. <laughs> not to be too ominous. <laughs> We, we mentioned at the start the kind of difficulty for those who are in landlocked countries and don't see the sea mm. uh, kind of day to day as being part of their lives. But the, the impacts on the ocean affect everybody in the world. They affect people in landlocked countries as well. How in particular might we start to help people who don't see the sea every day uh, understand that it still affects them? Yeah. But I think one of the biggest resources that, that nearly, I think, 95% of the population has access to is the internet. You know, with these, um, internet is a huge resource where messages can be broadcast. And I think that would be a really interesting route to go down. I mean, Chris and I are involved in a, a part of POP's project uh, looking at development of games. You know, how can we target different audiences through the format of play and actually conveying new information so potentially even audiences who don't really think about where seafood comes from all too much or don't even have access to seafood because of where they're located. Um, so I think technology is going to be a really crucial um, resource to use and communicating to communities that are less, less aware or close to the ocean who don't have that connectedness already um, in their communities. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I guess one of the slight advantages we perhaps perhaps have when it comes to issues of the ocean is the ocean still holds a great deal of wonder and mystery for people um so actually um with a little bit of effort actually getting that wire factor um to pull people in and make them interested um is is not hopefully not that hard um and yeah being a digital world these days that's getting easier and easier you know Lots of marine environmental charities, for example, are starting to do things like taking VR headsets into schools and into old folks' homes to, you know, into inner city areas to see people that have, have never seen the sea or can't get there easily and really taking them, taking that environment to them is very powerful, actually. Yeah, I would also highlight that actually um, when we're considering society, like communities and societies, that don't necessarily connect with the ocean as much as, for instance, someone who lives on an island. Um, we need to think about what happens in that culture, the language, the regions, making it less Western-centric programs. Because, you know, Europe, we have funded a whole variety of amazing programs like look at ocean conservation, protecting the ocean, understanding it. However, you know, the messages that work in England might not work for a, a community that is in a landlocked country such as Kazakhstan. So um, there has you have to accommodate the cultural differences um, and the priorities of certain countries. So thinking on a, a much larger scale. That's that's a really good point. I, I have a few friends in the Middle East and they see the way that the West is um, imposing, to use their word, the sort of green agenda on, on their part of the world as a form of colonialism. So that's a really interesting mm. one to, to take into account. And it's, again, making it more inclusive. So, you know, not just going over to these countries saying, look, you're going to have to start cleaning up your seas. It's about incorporating those decision decision policymakers over there. And it's a collaborative process. Um, and even though we have one ocean, you know, they're all interlinked, 
different pressures in different areas is really important and different aspects of the ocean have different importance to individuals as well. So it's understanding what are the priorities of these communities and making those connections really evident for them as opposed to what we think is important for them. It's all about being inclusive with all stakeholders involved. So we're all working on a project together um, called Dive In, which is going to be really fantastic. Um, and I think it's going to pick up a lot on these things that we've already been speaking about, things around behaviour change. And um, we've been doing some prototyping um, already with our critical conversation series and those issues around climate justice and being inclusive and listening to lots of different voices and that sort of thing. They're all coming through quite strongly already at this very sort of early stage in the in the project. Um And I think it'd be quite interesting to consider as we're sort of rounding up our conversation, what role museums can play in these conversations and in behaviour change? Well, I think opening the conversation, I think it's one of the probably the most important things we can all do as individuals and in in our work is is to really, you know, have the conversation and start a discussion and show what, show what, people are doing I guess like there's a large part of this which is actually about recognizing the positive changes that our people are already making and make them visible and you know make a fuss about them and um, because sometimes they're hidden from view they happen behind closed doors um, you know actually you know there have been huge shifts in recent years about uh, people shifting to lower carbon diets, changing their consumption habits around, you know, plastic as we've talked about, but also you know other consumables, and um, there are some trends there that we could really advocate um, to a wider audience, and I think that's one thing that we can do through the diving exhibition, um, but then actively linking those changes to the stories and the messages from the science about what's happening in the marine environment, why it matters, uh, and what we can do about it. Um, I also think that the exhibition offers the opportunity to just show the diversity within what marine science is. There are so many different threads of marine science that happen, that people can engage with, and I think it has the opportunity to inspire many different people about what's happening within St Andrews itself as well as a research institute um, and offers the opportunity to showcase just excellent research that's happening and make it more accessible. You know, it's not just a university building popped up on a campus, it's actually happening in your town and this is what you can take from it. And I think having an exhibition allows people to, you know, get their hands on some things as well and interact science directly is, is just a great way um, to educate people about some of these issues that are happening to our oceans right now. I guess it makes it a bit more visible doesn't it um, in the way mm. that we were, <laughs> we were speaking about earlier it does it gives you like a sort of platform to let people see and interact with something. I think another really important thing and probably never more you know for our generation never more so than at the moment um, if we can try and keep it as positive as we can. You know, there's a lot of recognition now of eco-anxiety and climate anxiety, and particularly in younger people, you know, I think 
uh, our, our youth uh, segment of our population is definitely feeling the strain um, and they're deeply aware, you know, through Extinction Rebellion and um, Fridays for the Future of of the criticality of all of these issues bearing down on, on them and their generation. Um, but I think we there are positives. There's a positive message and actually there's good reason to think that people will respond more if there's positivity around uh, encouraging the, those solutions and, and shouting about the good stuff that's happening and why it's happening. If people want to find out more about some of these issues, um, where can they go? Well, lots of places potentially. Let's try and narrow some down. Um, well, I was just going to highlight quite a fun thing that uh, uh, anyone can do. I've done it myself. Uh, it's There's a collaboration right now uh, that's underway between Sky Ocean and WWF, and uh, they've got a small initiative uh, which can be done by anyone very young uh titles become an ocean hero and they provide tips on very basic things that anyone can do to just reduce their impact on the oceans and also you can take a quiz to find out what type of ocean hero you are um they have some very good puns involved as well with the type of ocean hero so i think i came out as a sharktivist which i think is <laughs> which is a, a very loose activist term. But uh, yeah, they provide some great tips that if anyone's feeling overwhelmed, going, I don't know where to even start with reducing my impact on the oceans. It's a really simple resource that's easily found online. Um, so yeah, find out what ocean hero you are and can be on there. Who doesn't love a good pun? Exactly. But I think Chris is going to bring in some more of the heavy science now. <laughs> I will bring in some heavy science, but also some more fun things as well. On, on the sort of, you know, to get the, the science view, I guess, if you're in Scotland, if that's your, your domain, then you might be interested in looking at the recently published Scottish Marine Assessment, which is um, an update to a, a sort of Scottish level assessment of the status of Scottish seas in lots of ways. So um, you'll find that on, on the Scottish Government Marine Scotland website. Um, and then, you know, zooming out, there are similar similar resources if you want to look more internationally. So, for example, there's the, the OSPAR assessments for the Northeast Atlantic region. And then on a global scale, there's, there's plenty of stuff via uh, the UN Ocean Decade website. So something we haven't mentioned that we should is that we are just at the start of uh, a pivotal decade, or what is hoped as being a pivotal decade for, for the ocean and for ocean science, called the Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. Uh, so OceanDecade.org has lots of, of information on it as well. Something I was going to highlight and uh, was, we love podcasts like this one. Um, we, Hannah and I particularly enjoy one called Sustainable. Um, but another one we've come across which we enjoyed is called The Dragons of Climate in Action, and that was a series on the Future Ecologies podcast. And there's a guy, I think he's, I think he's Canadian, um, an academic who's a psychologist, that they developed this sort of taxonomy of, of the dragons of climate in action, so all the sort of psychological barriers there are to us doing the right thing, essentially. 
um, and they've turned this into a podcast with the people at Future Ecologies. And I highly recommend that as a as it's quite a deep dive into the psychology of of why it's difficult to affect behavioural change, uh, but also some of the you know some of the tools you might use to to ease that. Um, so I highly recommend that too. There is also a very uh, easily accessible podcast uh, about if you're really wanting to delve into um, oil companies and their impact on climate change. How they made how they made you doubt everything is a fantastic podcast on the BBC. Um, it's only 15 minute episodes, um, so if anyone's curious as to getting some more listening material, um, that's also a really great one to engage with. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, we'll, I'm sure, see you again at some point. Thank you. Ellie, what an interesting conversation. I'm going to look at the ocean in a totally different way now. Yeah, and I think that bit about, you know, you could live anywhere in the world, but the ocean still impacts you all the same. It's fascinating. It is. If you found what Chris and Hannah had to say interesting, you can check out the links to the different resources they mentioned in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, help others find the podcast by rating, reviewing and subscribing on your favourite podcast platform. Join us next month when we'll be with Leonie Leader and Nicola Law, who are postgrad students of Museum and Gallery Studies at the University of St Andrews, all about their upcoming exhibition, Sex as Subversion, Fantasy and Power, The Beggar's Benison Club. The Curiosity Conversation has been brought to you by the museums of the University of St Andrews.